Hi friends, welcome to this week's Moment with Miranda. I want to thank you so much for tuning in with me today and making the choice to come to the mirror of the Word of God. It's at the mirror of the Word of God where you and I see the truth. It's where we see the way. It's where we find life. There is perfect liberty and freedom and power in the Word of God. And in it, we do find everything that we need for life and godliness. And that comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, friends, it's in God's Word that we are invited to believe what he says. We're commanded to speak what he says and we are assured that we will see ourselves transformed into the image of Jesus, which is God's desire for us. And ultimately, we get to be the mirror's image in the earth, the mirror of Jesus Christ himself. So in today's moment, we're going to be talking together about the keepers. If that tickles your fancy or you're just curious as to where I might go with that, then I encourage you to stay tuned in with me as we take a deep look in the mirror of God's word today. I was sitting in Sunday school class this week, or as it is now affectionately known, Christian education, and I was listening as The teacher shared on that familiar verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And ultimately, it is the key to wisdom and life. And we were discussing what true godly fear is and what it isn't. And why there seems to be such a struggle today in society and even in the church in understanding the fear of the Lord. The lesson kind of gave way to a conversation about reverence and relationship and the question of whether or not the church has made God so relatable that we've lost our reverence of him. And of course, I began to be introspective and ask myself, how does reverence and relationship work together? Both are vital without having an awe for God or at least an initial wonder of him, I'll never desire a relationship. And a true relationship in which I begin to know for myself then seems like it creates an even greater reverence for him, which in turn takes me into deeper relationship and knowing him. And I was I was thinking about this. I was just seeing this kind of continual cycle of reverence and relationship and so on. As a young girl, I definitely had a reverential fear of my father. He was not a mean man, but he had the look, you know, that one that was enough to stop you in your tracks and cause you to straighten up. More often than not, the look kept me from doing some things that I really wanted to do that weren't the best or what I knew he didn't desire for me to do. The look was enough. And if the look didn't work, on a few occasions, and really it was just a few, there was a punishment for not obeying what my dad warned me of. I feared the punishment enough and the look enough that I led a pretty outwardly obedient childhood. I knew what my father wanted out of my behavior, so I did that. And quite honestly, only out of fear of the authority of dad and what would happen if I didn't. As most children are, I didn't understand that the punishments or the displeasure of dad was not because I was letting him down or was a disappointment of a child. The punishment was not because he was mean and he needed to take his anger out somewhere. Not at all. Consistently, and I do mean consistently, if there was a time where I was punished, he always said, now I'm only doing this because I love you. Of course, that brought a whole other level of questions to a simple child's mind. How was that love? It sure didn't feel like love. It wasn't roses and candy sprinkles. It wasn't me getting the Christmas gift that I was desperate to have. I mean, that was love, right? This punishment that I was told was love brought 
shame that I had failed my father so miserably. But he said that it was because he loved me. There was something that as a child, I didn't understand of that. What I didn't understand was that it was about relationship. For me, it started in reverence. I was afraid of my dad because he was the authority of my house. And as a kid, the authority of my life. That's the way that God set it about. Although maybe the looks that I remember from most of my childhood were the stern ones, as I'm thinking about it now, the very first looks that my dad gave me were undoubtedly the looks of incredible love and awe of me. He tells me quite often, even now, as an almost 40-year-old woman, I remember the day that you were born. You were so tiny that your bottom fit in the, the palm of my hand. You were just a little peanut. And when he says it, he gets this wistful look in his eyes. And it's this look of wonder. And it's this look of love. The wonder at one time I was so small. And it's the love that says, I can't believe that you were mine. Friends, although my remembrance of my father's face starts with reverential fear, truly, the first look that he gave me was one of incredible love. It was a look of desired relationship. This child is now mine and I'm responsible for her life. I will love her and I will keep her. This is what that look must have said. As an adult, now I understand all of my dad's training of me and raising me and nurturing me started from relationship. It started from a desired relationship. He wanted to do his best. He wanted to do right by me as much as he knew to do. As I have known that, my reverence of my dad has brought forth this relationship together. What started in childlike fear is now relationship. And all the more I revere him now for doing the best that he could, for loving me, for loving my mom and my brothers. Now, all the more, I want to honor him. I respect him and I want to bring him joy. And it's not because of this outward behavior that I think is pleasing to him that I do this. But it's about genuine desire to make our relationship a priority and to make his desires as much mine as I can. For me, reverence brought relationship, which brought about even more reverence. Even as I share this thought, though, friends, I recognize the gift that I had to have an earthly father in my life. Finite, and yet he was still there. Not everyone who hears this moment today will have had a similar experience to me. Some will not know what the look of their earthly father was when they were born. Some will not even be known by their earthly father. Some may have experienced rejection from the start. But notice what I said, that as wonderful and still flawed as my earthly father was, he was finite. He was simply a human example, an imperfect mirror of perfection. But he was created to be an example. However, friends, what I want us to focus on today is our Father God, that God is perfect, that he is infinite, not finite. He is perfect creator, perfect judge, perfect sustainer, perfect authority. He is perfect Father. So from the moment time began, from the onset of creation, everything he did and everything he made was out of and done in perfection and goodness and in perfect creation he made us like him for relationship with him and with one another 
He was in awe of us. And I believe that we were in awe of him. He trusted us with himself. And also he trusted us with creation. Reverence and relationship worked in perfect synchronicity with each other. Unlike our earthly fathers, his dealings with us and his training of and his nurturing of us, even today, are always from perfect love and out of a perfect character. No matter the difference of our earthly upbringing, those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, we have the same Father, and he is perfect and he is righteous. The book of James gives us a beautiful example of this in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He tells us every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no changing or a shadow of turning of his own will he gave birth to us through the message of the word of truth so that we would be a first fruit of his creation friends we were birthed out of desire and good intention to be his and to be known by him and to know him And because we know him, he can entrust us to keep his ways. Why, you may ask, did you go into such a long introduction to what is supposed to be a moment about the keepers? What does reverence and relationship have to do with it? Well, as our Christian education class continued, the teacher who was a school teacher herself for many years used an example that sparked something in my heart. She said that there were students in my class that I knew didn't respect me at all. They didn't care what I said. They didn't care about my position. Then there were others that did respect me, that listened to me. And those students were the ones that I could trust to do errands for me. Friends, what I heard was the ones who respected her and had a relationship with her were the ones that she trusted with freedom and liberty to leave her class and to do what she asked. They could be entrusted to keep the teacher's desires, even something as simple as taking the attendance down to the office. With that freedom, the students then had a choice to take advantage of the freedom, to spend extra time in the halls, maybe to go somewhere else besides the office, or they could stick to the teacher's desire and deliver the message. They knew the teacher, they respected her, and they had the choice as to what they would do with that relationship and respect to keep it or to disregard it. In Christ, my friends, this is how God sees us. He sees us as ones created to live life with him and to carry out his will. We are free to be keepers of his word and of his will together. And to be honest, I am floored by this thought that the God of heaven knows me And he trusts me with his desires. He trusts me to do what he would like done on the earth. What love that he has toward me. And that really creates in me this sense of holy fear. I want to honor him and his desires. I want to bring him joy with the freedom that he has given me. I want to be a keeper for him. So thinking about this vein and this thought of keepers, let's take a look back again at the Garden of Eden where we have so frequently gone to over these last moments because I want us to see again that this is not some kind of a New Testament concept only, but rather it's an Eden mandate. It's a scriptural principle. You know, God does things overwhelmingly there is just he said the scripture says he's alpha and omega he's the beginning and the end there are principles by which we live our lives and so let's see that there are principles that go throughout the thread of the entire word and in genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 it says and god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to dress it and to keep it 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Right away we see God taking the man that he has made in his image and entrusting him with a task. The task was to dress and to keep the garden. The Hebrew words here for dress can be translated to serve or to work or to do labor. The word for keep here, it means to have charge of, to protect, to guard, to preserve, or to watch over. In other words, the task that man was entrusted with was to serve and preserve God's interest in the earth. However, I think we can see here that the earth or creation was not the only thing that man was given to serve and preserve. If we only focus on the earth, then we will lose focus on what was the main object of keeping. The scripture tells us that God commanded man or gave him a charge. And that charge was that he could eat of any tree of the garden freely, but not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not just the garden that man was to keep. It was actually God's word that man was to keep. It was his word that said, dress and keep the earth. It was his word that said, eat and don't eat. His will was, in fact, his word. Man's sole responsibility was not to an object, but in fact, man's responsibility was to a relationship. A person, and that was God, a relationship with God. Man couldn't be focused on the earth without being focused on God. There would be a disharmony there. He couldn't say that he was in relationship with God by taking care of the earth, but not keeping God's word. He couldn't pick and choose what he would or would not keep. In my opinion, man's failure in the garden wasn't so much the action of eating the fruit. The fruit was just the object that became used for man's sin. But rather, man's failure was in not keeping the word of God itself. He was free to do anything else, yet he chose to do the one thing that God said not to do. He failed to keep the one word that God said no. He failed to keep the word that was entrusted to him by allowing doubt to speak louder than what had been God's consistent proven character of goodness and truth. We know then what God's response was to this failure of man and his response was to drive man and woman out of the garden. But I want to bring our attention to a certain verse that I hope will be kind of a launching place for the rest of our moment together today. And that verse is Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 where it says, So God drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims in a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I never really noticed until now that God had told Adam that they could eat from every tree but the one. And in every tree that included the tree of life. The tree of life was what would give Adam and Eve eternal physical life. They would eat from that tree and not die. They enjoyed the fruit of that tree already, maybe every single day, until that is the day that they sinned and no longer guarded the word of God. And it was because God is good and merciful and that he did not want them to live eternally in the state of separation, that he sent them out from the garden and from the tree of life to a place where they would certainly die a physical death, but they would not have to die separated from him eternally unless they chose to. And the scripture tells us that at the entrance of the garden, that he placed an angel and he placed a sword. 
And the scripture tells us again that it was a flaming sword that turned every way. And the picture that this evokes in my mind is that of someone brandishing a weapon, kind of back and forth, the flashing of that weapon to guard in every single direction. In other words, the way to eternal life was to be kept, guarded, or preserved by the sword. Stay tuned in for more Moment with Miranda. Hey guys, welcome back to Moment with Miranda, where we've been talking today about the keepers. We've already established that through reverence and relationship, God has entrusted us to keep his interests in the earth. This was his desire in the garden. As image bearers, he gave Adam and Eve his word to keep, trusting them to fulfill his desires. We see that they failed to guard the word of the Lord. And as a result, God sent them from the garden and placed as a guard of the way of eternal life, angels in a sword. We know that expulsion from the garden was not the end of mankind, though. They were still to keep the ways of God, but now they would have to daily choose. They wouldn't be in this paradise. They would get this choice continually between knowledge of good and evil, and they would choose whether to keep God's ways or to keep their own ways. In our last moment together, we talked about Cain and Abel and how immediately human nature just dominated mankind. Man became self-absorbed and self-preserving. Instead of having common interest and care for one another by serving and guarding relationship, it was like every man for themselves. After Cain killed Abel, God came to him and asked, where's your brother Abel? To which Cain replied that infamous line, am I my brother's keeper? I think that this is so interesting and worth paying attention to. Obviously, we were meant to help one another. But now, self said, is that my job? Cain began to look out for numero uno, number one, in his his own desires and himself. God had just told Cain, watch out that what you obey will cause you to sin. Sin is always going to be trying to dominate you. So you're going to have this choice of who you're going to obey. This was God's word to Cain. Basically, it was if you do good, you're going to get good. But Cain refused to live by God's word, just like Adam and Eve didn't live by God's word. And Cain allowed his own jealousy to overtake him, and he murdered his brother because of it. You see, God's word was the way to life. It would be like a sword to cut Cain's personal desire. That's how the word of God would have come to Cain's desire. But instead of choosing to receive basically the sword of the word of God and live, Cain chose his own way. He chose his own sword. And not only did his own sword kill his brother, but it also basically killed himself. As a result, God said, you are cursed from the earth and you will always be a wanderer. Where at least there was like a proximity that men lived to God. Cain would not be one that would be in that proximity. He would be separated from God. And it's really funny because immediately the one who wanted to keep his own way when it suited him, now pleads with God to keep him from the harm of other people. He's like, if you leave me, I'm going to be murdered. He finally understood that his own actions and choices would separate him from life and relationship with God, with the God that would ultimately be able to keep him. How true this is to human condition. We want help when it suits us and we refuse it when it's not how we want it. We complain that we don't have help, but then when we do get help and it's not what we expected, we're upset. We want to live our own path, but 
we and we want to be apart from the ways of God and yet we want the blessings of God we want freedom but we want to establish our own parameters of that freedom and we want to believe that no matter what we choose that we're just going to be protected we don't want the the God who is perfect, we don't trust the God who's a perfect father that he truly has our best intention in his heart. We want the benefits of the gifts of God, but we don't want the God who gave the gifts because that means that we would need to live lives that glorify and exalt his name and his interests above our own. So what's the point that I'm trying to make with all of this backstory? I mean, I kind of went into a lot of detail here. And why bring again to the picture Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, the failure of man and our depravity and our self-rule? Well, friends, I point out the failure and the destruction so that the good news will really be good news, so that it will be all the more powerful and influential. I point out where we've fallen from so that we'll know what we've been restored to and then how we're able to walk in the power of it. So this is the time in our moments where you and I get practical. This is where we look at truth through the knowledge of the truth, Jesus Christ. And we see where we are being transformed into the sons and daughters that he has raised us and is raising us to be. Just like Adam and Eve, even Cain and Abel, and subsequent countless others who have lived before us and who will live after us as the Lord tarries, we are all still made to be keepers. Just like we were created to be in Eden, we are created now to be on earth, the keepers of the way of life. We are keepers of the word of life. Throughout the scriptures, God has showed us how he intends for this to look. It looked like a life that was led by faith and trust in God and in his word. From start to finish, in each generation, men and women were invited to keep the ways of God. In Abraham, God found a man who would listen to his instruction, who would follow by faith, and who would lead others to do the same. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, God gives a wonderful testimony of Abraham. He says, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they will keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment so that I can bring to him what I have promised. There was an abundance of life that God promised to Abraham if he would follow him. By faith, as much as Abraham knew to do, he set out to keep God's word. God entrusted it to Abraham, and he knew that Abraham would keep it and pass it on to his children. What a testimony of that man. At Mount Sinai, God really did the same for the entirety of the children of Israel. He said, if you will obey my voice and keep my commands, you will be a special treasure among all of the other peoples, among the nations. It was the keeping of the word of God that would mark the difference between Israel and all of the other nations of the earth. The keeping of the word would be the difference between life and death, the difference between blessing and cursing. God said, see, this day I have set before you blessing and cursing, life and death. Choose life so that you and your family might live. You see, even out of Israel, this chosen people of God, this people that God intended to keep his commandments and knew that some of them would out of this group of people there was even another group of people that had an even more specific role as keepers and that was the tribe of Levi if you remember the tribe of Levi was the tribe that was given to serve as ministers to the Lord out of that tribe there were three divisions there were the sons of Mary 
the sons of Kohath and the sons of Gershon. From the family of Kohath came the priestly line, the high priestly line, as well as others who operated in the role of priests. It's from the family of Kohath that we see where Aaron and Moses, who their father was, and subsequently where all of the high priests came from in that line. But there were other members of that line that operated in roles of priests as well. Each of the divisions of the tribe of Levi, they had different orders when it came to the service of the tabernacle. The Gershonites, they transported the tent, the curtains, and the hangings. The Merorites, they transported the wood and the metalwork of the tabernacle, responsible for moving the boards and the sockets and the pillars. And then we see the Kohathites, who had the responsibility of serving at the altar and also carrying the instruments of the tabernacle, the ark, the table, the candlestick, the altar, and all of the other vessels. The family of the high priest came specifically from this group, and they served at the altars, and the high priest served behind the veil on behalf of the children of Israel. Several times we see in the Bible where this group is referred to specifically as the keepers of the door or the keepers of the house. They kept the way into the house of the Lord and also into the presence of God. Not only though did they keep the Lord's house, the physical house, but they were also responsible for keeping the Lord's word which represented the building of the spiritual house. They were responsible for both. There was this really this immense responsibility placed upon the priesthood. As they followed God, other people would follow them. What they allowed in their lives or said was okay, others would be impacted by and ultimately empowered by to allow in their lives and to be okay with. What they said, God said, others would believe and would follow. They were greatly entrusted with the word and with the will of God. When the priesthood kept the charge of the Lord's house and the word of the Lord, things went really well and Israel prospered. God was honored. The people were honored. They, they grew and they increased. But when the priesthood failed to keep the word of the Lord, sin abounded. People were taken advantage of. God was blasphemed and Israel was exposed to judgment. Much of the book of Malachi is really an indictment against the priesthood of God who were given the covenant of life and peace. They were given the law of truth and the responsibility to walk justly. They were told to keep knowledge and seek the words of God as his messenger, but they had departed from the way of the Lord. They had deviated from the path of life. They had dropped, if you will, the sword of the word of the Lord. And as a result, they caused many people to stumble. They corrupted the covenant of God for their own desires. And they married pagan women. They left behind the wife of the covenant of God. Their actions encouraged other people to do the, sh the same. And eventually, much of the whole nation was led astray because of the example of the priests. Likewise, we see in Ezekiel something very similar where those of the high priest family, they set people in place as priests who were not even of the people of Israel to serve in the temple. They allowed the pagans and the foreigners to come into a place, into the house of the Lord, that they had no right to have access to or to serve in capacity in. And they did it in the name of God as his representative saying that this was okay with God. They did it according to their own desires, even though they had been entrusted to be those who would keep God's desires. This is a sobering fact of something that very easily happened in the life of Israel, and we can see actually happens in our time even today.
Instead, though, of only pointing out the ones who failed to keep the ways of God, there have always been a group of people who haven't failed to keep the ways of God. Or if they did at times drop the sword, they picked it back up. There was always a group that even when all of Israel went astray, they kept the word of God. And because of this group, even though at times, though few, they passed on the truth of the ways of life so that others could know God. They held up the sword of truth that led to the tree of life. They were consistent. We see through the Old Testament that there is a myriad of examples of people who did not have Christ, and yet they still kept the word of the Lord. They had enough knowledge of the holy. They had enough knowledge of righteousness. They had enough fear and reverence of God, although not having the same privilege to similar relationship with God as you and I have. They believed by faith in what they had not yet experienced. They believed by faith that the God they did know would perform all of the word that they had, that he had spoken, even though they themselves may not experience the fullness of it, or even if they didn't understand really what he was saying, they believed and they passed on the word of God because they knew that they had been entrusted with that great responsibility. And even as we see a transition beginning to happen to the new covenant. We see men and women who continue to do the same, men and women like Simeon and Anna in the temple who were given a word from the Lord that the consolation of Israel was coming. They were a man and a woman who believed that the word of God was still true, although it had been generations since that word had gone forth. There had been this time where there had been no new word from the Lord. So they stayed the course with what he had said. They kept the word. They continued to keep his honor. They continued to keep worship to him. They continued to believe. And they both got to see the word that they believed in the flesh. I love how Anna was just doing what she always did. She was committed going into the temple to worship and to give alms and to pray before God. And she was in the place at the time to be able to see Mary and Joseph bring Jesus in, to see that consolation of Israel. We see that Simeon also got to partake in this very same thing. And I love what happens when Simeon lays his eyes on Jesus for the first time. He begins to praise God. He says, my eyes have seen his salvation. He said, a light to light the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. He knew then that he could die a happy man. I think he probably would be like, just take me home now, God. But what he said to Mary and Joseph really captured my attention because out of realizing and seeing and laying his eyes upon salvation, he recognized that the very one that came to save would also be the very one that would bring division to many people. He said to Mary and Joseph, he said, behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel and for a sign that will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce your own soul also and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Notice what he says. He says what this child brings some will fall by and some will rise again by it. Some will speak against him and his words will speak against every man's thoughts and reveal the depth of each heart. 
In other words, the word in the flesh will divide between soul and spirit, between the joints and the marrow, and will discern even the innermost thoughts, and everyone will be laid open before God. Every single person bear before the Lord. And throughout Jesus's earthly ministry, when he spoke to people, his word was like a sword. And it either brought life to people through healing, or it brought death because they were judged by it. He said, I have not come to condemn the world. But I have come so that the world through me might be saved. He that does not believe is condemned already because he doesn't believe in the name of the Son of God. He that doesn't believe is basically refusing the revelation light. The truth of what is has been revealed and the unbelieving refuses to come and to be healed by it. What I really want us to see, friends, is that there is a sword that guards the way to the tree of life or the way to eternal life. And that sword is the word of God. And Jesus is that word. Jesus is the way to life. Jesus is the way of truth. There is no one who will be able to come to the Father to enter into paradise except through Jesus Christ. And you and I, we find ourselves in a unique moment in history. Not so much unique to time past like that this has never been anybody who's experienced what we're experiencing right now but rather unique to our time in our time like every time before culture and society are making a stand against the word of god and against the way into the path of life one well-known talk show host here in america says that there are many ways to god there are many ways to life. We each find our own path. And what a sowing of doubt and deception that this is, just like the serpent's lies in the garden. Even today, he continues to use those who do not know God to try to make him out to be a liar. He continues to bring a challenge to the proven character of God as good and faithful and true as not being who he said and not meaning what he said. We face today what Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. We face an assault on the Word of God and our mandate to be keepers of it. We see their failure and we can be afraid that it will be our own, but I want to encourage us to look to the second Adam, not the first, but to look to the second Adam and to see his victory. Because friends, Jesus triumphed over the lies of the enemy. In the temptations in the wilderness, Jesus faced Satan as a man. He faced the enemy as a man. He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. He had the power of God, but he chose to set aside that power to be found in the form of man. So what was the temptation that Christ faced in the wilderness? It was the same temptation that we all face. It was the challenge against the word of God and the character of God. Every time the serpent hissed at Jesus using his senses, his physical needs and desires, and even his father's word, Jesus refused to be moved. He held fast and kept the word of God as the way of life. Think about it, friends, that Jesus had all power. He had the power of God, and yet he chose to set it aside. He chose to be empowered by the Spirit of God. He was led by the Spirit 
into the wilderness to be tempted. And he came out full of the power of God. He came out using the sword. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. As human, empowered by the Spirit, Jesus overcame the temptations of the wilderness, showing me and you that through the power of the Spirit and with the sword that the Lord has given to us that we have been entrusted with, we can do the same. So am I saying that we're going to be perfect like Jesus was? Because bear in mind, friends, that although Christ laid aside his godhood, he laid aside the right to be called God, if you will, he still was very much God. He still was perfect. He still was sinless. He was perfect human. Does that mean that you and I, empowered by the Spirit, are going to be perfect human? Probably not. We know ourselves. We know that there are times whenever we will drop the sword. But what we can do is like John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. And we can pick the sword up again and we can pick it up again and we can pick it up again as many times as necessary. And we can keep using it and keep bringing glory to God, even if at times the sword is used on ourselves. See, friends, for this time and for this generation, you and I have been entrusted with the word of God to keep it and to declare it in our areas of influence. We are the sons and the daughters who walk in relationship with God and see to it that the truth is continued on to the next generation. This is our mandate again, to dress and to keep the garden, to serve and preserve the word of God. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes to this young church at Ephesus about this very mandate. And he starts kind of like how I started this whole moment today. He starts at the beginning with God's choice of them and his provision, his choice of them in that it was a desired relationship, just like the first look that my dad gave me was a look of love. God looks upon us with a look of love because of Christ and what Christ did. And he sets us in Christ and gives us an inheritance. And Paul explains this to this Ephesian church, and he tells them that the church was manifested for this very purpose, to display God's wisdom to the earth. We have been made one in Christ, and we have been given the authority to walk in the power of his image in us. It is the image of unity. It's one spirit. It's one mind. It's one heart. It's looking out for one another again. Instead of asking, am I my brother's keeper? We just know that's my brother. Man, I really want to help him stay kept to stay serving, to stay submitted to God. We, we learn through the book of Ephesians that we serve God and we serve one another together, that we learn to forgive and we learn to love and we continue to grow into Christ. We learn that the purpose that God has manifested in his church is one of holding one another accountable, not just keeping ourselves, but keeping others. And we stand in the armor of God, clothed in what he has given us through Christ, holding the shield of faith to stop the enemy's attacks and wielding the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, we are the ministers of God. We are the messengers of God. We're like the Levites. We are 
a royal priesthood unto God. And we have been entrusted with his word. We're the keepers of the house, the keepers of the physical house, the keepers of the spiritual house. We are the keepers of the way to the tree of life. We don't fling the sword with the desire to kill people. But we send the sword with the hope that it will bring healing. We send the sword with the hope that bonds will be cut and that chains will be broken. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 4 says, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it is a breach in the spirit. One version says that the tongue that heals is a tree of life, but a devious tongue breaks the spirit. There is the cutting of a sword, which when wielded with precision and skill, it takes care of the malady and it allows healing to come for wholeness. It cuts out the cancer. It trims back the gangrenous wound. It takes away that part that is allowing for infection and it brings wholeness. This truly is the purpose of the word of God. And as his keepers, he has entrusted us to this task. It's kind of like the student that was sent on the errand for the teacher that she's in relationship with. She has the freedom to roam the halls or the freedom to accomplish the task. Because she knows the desire of the teacher and her trust of her to fulfill those desires, she sticks to what she knows to do. Like Adam and Eve carried the word of the Lord in Eden, friends, we carry the word of the Lord on earth. And God trusts us to know him, to revere him, to honor him, and to honor people. Because we can't honor God and not honor people as well. He trusts us to use his word like he would as a healing agent. But just like God does, we have to let people make their own choices. We cannot force their heart to believe just like God doesn't force ours. He invites and we invite. So today in this moment, friends, we are keepers for God. We are the keepers of the sword of God, which guards the way to the tree of life. The tree of life is Jesus, and it's through the word and by the word, through him and by him, that we have everlasting life. It's through him that we have access to paradise again. And it's through him that we will one day eat again of the tree of life in the kingdom of heaven together with all of those that have gone on before us. What an awesome and a wonderful privilege and calling that God has given to you and I, entrusted to be the keepers of the word of God. As I close today, I would really love to share with you a poem that I wrote recently on this very subject. God sends the sword in the power of his word to pull down, to root out, to destroy, to bring about. For some it kills and others heals, replants and builds to bring forth spirit yields. So friend, what is our chosen part? We can't delay to make a start. Open wide the sanctified gate, be filled and speak, don't hesitate. It's not your words nor judgment sent, you are a vessel for spirit's intent. Only trust the master's lead. Perhaps you're sowing freedom's seed. Why don't we pray together, friends? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this moment today. And I thank you for this time to come to the mirror of your word, to see Jesus in more fullness. Father, we see where we have fallen short of the trust that you've placed in us, Lord. I haven't realized how much you truly do see in me, that you value the spirit of God that you've placed in me to know what's your will and to carry it out, Father, in my everyday. I ask that you would help me to do so. I ask that you would help my friends to do so, so that we truly could be people who keep the way to the tree of life, who 
speak the word of the Lord, that others can know you, that speak the word of the Lord so that healing can come and salvation can come to any who will say yes to the invitation that we put forth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, thanks for joining me for this week's Moment with Miranda. I hope that you will tune in again next time, and I will see you soon.